Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark 7. So Mark chapter 7. So last week, uh, we saw Jesus in a pretty significant controversy with the religious leaders. Uh, they were going back and forth over the role of what's called the tradition of the elders. It's this interpretation of the law that's been passed down from generation to generation. And by Jesus' day, it was seen as just as authoritative as the law that's written in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And Jesus was saying, that's just not the case. You guys are misusing this thing. Maybe at some point it was helpful to telling people how to obey, but it's become burdensome. That's what he says in Matthew. He says, you guys, you religious leaders, y'all are just piling these regulations on top of people and you don't even lift a finger to try to help them. And then he also, he, he kind of goes one step further and he says, and actually y'all's understanding of what makes someone defiled, what makes them unholy, that, that's wrong too. It's not the stuff that's out there. It's not the food that people eat or whether they wash their hands after they leave the market. It's what comes out of our hearts. That's where unholiness or defilement is rooted. So that's a pretty massive break from the religious leaders. And, and, and Jesus, he leaves. And that's what we'll see today. He, he moves to a different area. And this is probably the most uh, puzzling, if not troubling, encounter Jesus has with an individual in the gospel. So we're just going to look at one story today, just a few verses. Chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place, so that's where he was, where this controversy with the religious leaders was. And he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then Jesus told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. So Jesus goes to a Gentile area. You'll see the map behind me. He goes to a place called Tyre. It's about 35 miles from where he was, which is uh, Gennesaret. And this was, it would have been unconventional for sure. Jews didn't travel into Gentile areas. Again, Gentiles were considered unclean. And remember, we've talked before, the idea is, is that defilement, it, it, it's contagious. It's, it's easy to, to catch it. And so going to a Gentile area, a Jew's bound to become unclean. They're going to have to undergo this ritual washing when they get back to their home. And so they would just avoid the whole uh, they just avoid the places. So uh, unconventional and, and un un unexpected, the Messiah, the understanding is he would actually cleanse the land of the Gentiles, not that he would go and try to help them. So that's where he is. And uh, it seems to me that he's going because he is trying to create some space. And in Mark 6, 31, when the disciples come back from that short-term mission trip that Jesus sent them on, he tries to pull away with them just to spend some time alone with them, but he can't. They get in a boat, if you remember this, and they go, try to go to, a, to this location where they can be alone, but the crowd figures out where they go in and they beat them to the spot. So when the disciples get there, there's 12,000 people. Not, they're not alone. And so Jesus feed, he teaches them, and then he feeds them. And then he, has this, he, he goes to a different part of the lake, and it says uh, that everybody in the whole region is bringing people to him. So he's pressed by crowds that are wanting to 
him to heal them. And then he's got the controversy with the Pharisees. So I think he goes to this Gentile area, because, honestly, because no Jews are going to follow him. And so he's trying to get away from the crowds and he's trying to get away from controversy. You can see that. He, he goes into a house, which is another huge no-no. A Jew would not enter a Gentile's house. Again, the understanding is I'm, I'm going I'm to wind up getting defiled. You're going to serve me food that's unclean. I'm going to sit on a chair that's unclean. Like something's going to happen. And then I'm going to have to take this, do this ritual cleansing when I get back. So they just wouldn't even go into a Gentile house. And Jesus does. Again, I think it shows several things. One, what we saw last week, he's saying it's not what's out there that makes us unclean. It's what's in here. But two, it shows the links that he's going to try to be alone and try to be with the disciples. But it doesn't work. Everybody finds out. And so they begin to come to him as well. And this one particular woman comes and she falls at his feet and she begs him to heal her daughter. And that's a posture of humility and it's, also, it's a posture of, de- of desperation. Heal my daughter. She's possessed by a demon. And then this is what's so difficult. It's Jesus' response to her and that's what's hard for us. Let the children eat everything that they want first. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So step back over here as an aside. Uh, one way, uh, this is the way I would read the Bible, or I do read the Bible, and I'd encourage you to do the same. I read it, I would say it's theologically, or some people might say holistically. I try to look at the specifics in light of the things that we know to be true from the whole. So, for instance, Hebrew says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. And so when I read this, I have that in my mind. Whatever Jesus is saying to her, it, he's, not, he's not sinning. He's not sinning against her and what he's saying. And so that pushes me to try to figure out, so what exactly can be going on there that he can call a woman a dog and it's okay? Because that's what he's doing. Like, how, is, how can that be okay? And so that's a, a couple of things maybe for you to think about. I think three words in Jesus' response are really important. Children first and then dogs. So children, that's Jesus referring to the Jews. They saw themselves, and rightfully so, as the children of God. They were his chosen people. They, they, they were his special possessions. So they saw themselves in this unique relationship with God. And that's, that is 100% correct. They're the children. And Jesus says they eat first. So that, that's his priority. And you see this throughout, particularly in Matthew and Mark. Jesus says, I'm sent first to the Jews. That, that's who I'm sent to. As the Messiah, I'm going to God's people first. It's the priority of the Jews. And that, again, that's as it should be. For at least the last 400 years, the Jews have been growing in their in- anticipation of the Messiah being sent. Things are getting worse for them, and they're actively expecting the Messiah to come. And theoretically, they're prepared. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But again, theoretically, they should be the most prepared because they have the Old Testament. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see hints of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. So again, theoretically, the Jews are ready for the Messiah. Jesus is sent to them first. And then, he, he, and then dogs, that's, that's a way that a Jew would refer to a Gentile. And it's not a compliment, you did, it, just like it's not now. It's not kind. You know, it's, it was, uh, a dog was unclean. They ate trash and they scavenged. And so the, the, it wasn't cute like your Labradoodle or whatever. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not something cute and cuddly. It's a street dog. That's the word that, people, that a Jew would use for a Gentile. But Jesus actually changes the word. We don't pick up on it in English. And he actually does make it your Labradoodle. He makes it into a house pet. 
which is a different, there's a different connotation there for sure. So in general, Jews would call Gentiles dogs, and it was, it was a put down. You guys are unclean, just like all of those mongrels on the street. Jesus changes just the ending of the word, and it makes it go from that to your cute little, you know, whatever your dog is, your house pet. And the woman picks up on it, and this is what's so interesting to me. She's remarkable. So what I would tend to hear as a rebuke, she hears as an invitation. And everything cha- turns on that. What, what, when we're reading that, we're going, geez, how do, you, how do you call a woman a dog who's come and fallen at your feet? Or her daughter's, like, what do you do? How, why? But she doesn't hear it that way. She doesn't, she doesn't hear no. She doesn't hear leave. She doesn't hear shut down. She hears an invitation. She's picking up on just, I think it's just those, just those words, especially the word first and the word dog, the fact that Jesus changed the, the ending of it to, to change it from, again, kind of a street dog to a house pet. I think she grabs onto that. She says, Lord, but, but, but even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. So the, the dominant understanding is if you want to be in a right relationship with God, you've got to become a Jew. And that's not just conversion, how we think of it. If you want to be in right relationship with God, you've got to become a Christian. Think more like immigrating to another country. It's not just a religious identity. It's, it's an ethnic identity. So it would be like if you want to become a Christian, you've got to follow Jesus and then move to America or wherever it is. That, that's the understanding of the day. If you want to be in a right relationship with God, you actually have to become Jewish, which is, again, not just a religious identity, it's an ethnic identity. So it's a massive step for people. There is no salvation outside the Jews. But when Jesus says, I'm sent first, or let the children eat first, that implies that there's more. Just that one word, first, it doesn't mean there's nothing for you. It just means let the children eat first. And again, she grabs onto that, not as a rebuke, but as an invitation, so there is, there is a chance. There, there is the possibility here. And then she actually does something similar to what Jesus does. When he talks about children, he uses a word that means biological children. The, so for me, it'd be the four kids that I have. She uses a different word. She uses a word for children that's talking about children like as a, as a group or as a class. So for us, it would be the children of Stonebridge. It's not the, the children that Stonebridge has had. It's all of the kids who are over there who are under 12. She's kind of playing back with Jesus' this expansion of an understanding of who the Messiah is, who he's come to help. So back in Mark, I think it's 3, I can't remember exactly. There's a, I think it's in Mark 3, yeah, uh, 7 and 8. It, we read just this little snippet, and it says, Jesus' reputation, this is my summary, Jesus' reputation is, is known in Tyre and Sidon. His fame is spreading even to Gentile areas. So I think she knew something about Jesus. She wouldn't have approached him otherwise. I think she was totally convinced that he had the power to help her daughter. But I also think she at least suspected something about his character. He'd helped people like her before. Now, they had to travel. They had to go the 35 miles to the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum, to be ministered to by Jesus. But now Jesus has come to her. And I think, again, I think what she's thinking is, you've helped people like me before. You've helped my neighbors or my friends. She's heard what he's done. People in her town, in her area, have been ministered to by Jesus. So she knows not just that he can, but also that there's at least a possibility that he will. 
And what I think she's doing, in my mind, it's kind of the, the lady who's bleeding, who touches or grabs onto Jesus' robe. That's what she's doing. She's grabbing onto this thread of Jesus' character, and she's pulling on that. This is what I think of you. I think you're the kind of guy that helps people like me, even if we're women and even if we're Gentiles. You're, you respond to need. You're not responding to ethnicity. I think that's what she's pulling on. And Jesus is blown away by her response. He says, for a reply like that, you can go home. Your daughter's healed. And, and her daughter was healed. It's a phenomenal story, the faith of this one woman. Again, what would seem, at least to me, what seems like a rebuke, what would seem like this is shutting things down. You're not one of the children, and so you don't get to eat. Because she knows something or at least suspects something about Jesus' character, he's the kind of guy who helps people like me. She's able to pick up on those little things in his response, and she answers right back. And he's blown away by her faith, the fact that she is willing to say, yes, I know you're sent first to the Jews, but there's enough for everybody. Even dogs eat what the crumbs that fall from the kids' table, and it doesn't impact what the kids are eating at all. There's plenty to go around. You don't see that anywhere else up to this point in Mark. Nobody's responded to Jesus that way. This expansive understanding of who he is as the Messiah. Again, it's, she's a remarkable woman. It reminds me of two stories. One is from Genesis 18. I'm going to read you a few verses. So this is Abraham. You remember him. God and two angels have showed up at Abraham's house. And he's showed them hospitality. He's fed them. And then God says, I'm going to let Abraham know what I'm about to do. We have a special relationship, and I'm going to let him know. There's two towns, Sodom and Gomorrah. They're really near each other. And God says the, the wickedness, the grievousness of that sin, there's an outcry. It's come up to me, and I want to know if it's really as bad as I'm hearing. So I'm going to read just a few verses starting in verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. Their sin so grievous. I'm going to go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I'll know. So the men, those are actually two angels, turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached God and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And God says, yes, if there's 50, I won't do it. And then Abraham said, what if there's 45? Yeah, if there's 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And they, Abraham is interceding for this wicked city. And they get down to, yeah, if there's 10 righteous people, then I'm not going to destroy the city. I don't exactly know what Abraham's doing. His, his nephew, Lot, lives in Sodom. And I don't know if he's kind of negotiating, praying, interceding on behalf of Lot, if he's trying to save Lot. But if so, he didn't, he didn't get last year's Christmas card. There's only six people in Lot's family. He doesn't, go, he doesn't get it low enough. There's Lot, his wife, his two daughters, and their fiancés. And so the city winds up being destroyed. You, you, you know the rest of the story. But for our sake, what's so interesting there, again, it's this, he, to me, Abraham is approaching God in a similar way to this Syrophoenician woman approaching Jesus, Abraham's pulling on this thread of God's character. You're not the kind of God that destroys righteous people with wicked people. You're not the kind of God that judges righteous people for the wickedness of those around. That's not what you do. 
You're the judge of all the earth. You're going to do the right thing. You're righteous and just. And so that's what he's pulling on. Neither Abraham nor the Syrophoenician woman approach Jesus or the Father from a place of saying, I'm actually a pretty good person, and so you should answer my prayer. Or, this situation is so terrible, you should answer my prayer. They don't approach based on their goodness or their circumstances' badness. What they're pulling on is the character of the one that they're approaching. It's very different. It's very different from how most of us approach God in prayer. One more story. Luke 11, it's a parable, and you know it. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and he gives them the Lord's Prayer as a model. And then he gives them this this parable, this story, and he says, suppose that a friend, uh, he has a friend come to him at midnight. And the idea is, well, if, if you show up at somebody's house, they're supposed to treat you hospitably. It would have been a huge source of shame to not be able to receive someone who came to your house. And so someone comes to your house at midnight, you don't have any food, so you go to your neighbor, you knock on the door and say, can I have three loaves of bread? Nobody has three loaves of bread at midnight. Nobody does. You bake the bread in the morning, you eat it during the day. Nobody's got it. There is no Kroger. And so for whatever reason, this guy goes next door and he is banging on the door saying, I need three more loaves of bread. This is a one-room house where you're sleeping in the same room with your kids. For you to get up, you're getting everybody up. And the neighbor's knocking on the door. And, it's, and what Jesus says is that, that neighbor, he's going to get up and answer the door not out of friendship, but because of the, and my Bible says, because of the shameless audacity of the one who's knocking. Your Bible may say the boldness or the importunity, if you have an older translation, or the shamelessness. It's a weird word, and it's actually a negative word. It's always used negatively in the literature of the day. It's not a nice word. It's this idea that says, I'm kind of without any regard for shame or manners or custom or propriety. I'm just going to ask for what I want. And Jesus is saying that's, that's, that's how you, he's teaching his disciples how to pray. The very next word is so, ask. That's what he's saying. Like we hear that and think that guy's rude. And there's a, there's a sense in which, it's like, yeah, he's rude. But it's not a parable about manners. It's a parable about prayer. And what Jesus is saying is that's what we're looking for. That's the kind of thing that we're, we're looking for someone who's going to knock on the door at midnight to ask for what they want because they need it. Not because they deserve it, but because they need it. And for most of us, if we're honest, when we approach God to ask in prayer, we ask for things that, again, if we're honest, we think we deserve them. And if not... We don't ask until we kind of do the work to make ourselves a, a little bit more worthy. If we're serious. Most of us don't approach God pulling on his character. We approach God either based on our goodness or on the badness of our circumstances. God, this is so desperate you have to. Or God, I, I, we don't say it because we know it's not true. But again, it's deep within us. God, I deserve this. I've been faithful. I've been righteous. I've walked away from this sin and that sin. I've given this much money, whatever it is. That's the way we tend to approach them. And honestly, we come, and we do. We come by it honest because almost every react relationship we have is transactional. Most of them are, it, it is based on kind of what we can do for the other person. 
when we see from the Syrophoenician woman, from Abraham, and from this teaching in Luke 11, approaching God is really different. It's not based on worth, which you already know, but it's different to know it. And it's not based on the desperation or the badness of our circumstances. What we're pulling on is the character of the one that we're approaching. So this Gentile woman, who would she's as far away from Jesus culturally and socially as you can be. But she approaches him and falls at his feet because she knows something about him. I know, or at least suspects, you're the kind of guy who helps people like me. I don't necessarily fit the category. I'm a Gentile woman, not a Jewish man. But you respond to need. And so that's what I'm going to grab onto. Abraham, you're not the kind of God who destroys the righteous with the wicked. You're the kind of God that will preserve a whole city if there's just a remnant of righteous people there. Jesus saying, when you approach God, like there's, I don't want to say it this way, but kind of, it's, it's okay to be rude in that sense. I'm not saying be disrespectful, but there's a, there's a place here to say, God, th- this is what I need. And you're the one, you're the only one who's got it. And so I'm going to keep asking until I get an answer. The answer may be no, but I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to approach you, again, with this this place of shameless audacity. The picture behind me was a wrecking ball. I think that's what God has looked like to to come at him that way. And again, for most of us, that's difficult because it feels so, it feels disrespectful to him. But it seems like that's what he's inviting us to and what he responds to. And I, I think it's, it's not because he's coarse or rough. I think it's because he wants he wants us to understand what relationship with him looks like. And most of us don't. Most of us are afraid. We're going to overstep and we're going to get cut. We're going to say the wrong thing and we're going to get put in time out. Most of us, if we were, again, deeply honest, we would say, He's just waiting to punish us. We don't get what it is for him to say, you can draw near to me. I've adopted you into my family. You may be faithless, but I'm going to remain faithful to you. That's 2 Timothy. There's a reason that Paul prays that we would, the Holy Spirit would strengthen us to know how wide and high and long and deep is the love of God. It's because we're not going to understand it otherwise. It's beyond. He says, I want you to know a love that surpasses knowledge. There's an experiential component. And I think that's what all of this is rooted in. It's God saying, do you really know what it's like for Abraham to be in a covenantal relationship with me? And for us, do you know what it is to be adopted into my family? Do you actually know what that means to be a son or a daughter? To be secure enough to bang on a door at midnight. To be secure enough to approach him, again, not based on your goodness or the badness of your situation, but based on the character of the one that you're approaching. This is what I want us to do. We're going to close with um, a a time of prayer. We'll have ministry teams up here. And if you're the friend at midnight, like if you have a a need, we want you to approach. And the thing, like it may feel selfish. It doesn't matter. 
Again, it's not the, it's not the rightness of your request that we're concerned about. What we're focused on is the, the character of the one that we're asking and then your posture as a son or a daughter. So whatever it is, it may be in a relationship, it may be something in terms of just your own personal uh, struggle, it may be something with your work, it may be something with your health. What do you need? We'll have ministry teams here and we'll pray for you. And we're also going to leave the altar open. And I, I almost didn't do this because some of you are going to opt out of asking for something for yourself because you're going to pray for others. But I, do, I didn't know there would be people here who, as I'm talking, that's what you're hearing. You're, you need to be Abraham today. There's somebody that you need to intercede for, uh, whether it's one camp that Bo mentioned or it may be somebody specifically that you know you need to pray for. And you need to ask boldly for them. So this uh, altar will be open. You can kneel or you can stand and we'll leave you alone here. But I want to encourage you to pray. Uh, again, if you have that need, ask him this morning. So I'm going to pray. You guys stand. Ministry teams, Bo, you guys can come on back up. If the teams get full, just wait. You can sit down in the chairs and just wait. We've got plenty of time. We're running early. If you're on the ministry team and you're not, this isn't your Sunday. If you see that people are full, if you come up and uh, help, that would be great too. God, I pray you teach us this, which honestly is so hard for many of us to kind of get our hearts around. It goes against the way we're kind of taught to relate to so many people, particularly to people who are in authority over us, people who are kind of above us. To think of being shamelessly audacious, it, it almost feels wrong. God, would you help us? And, and I pray that our growth in this would be rooted in a deepening understanding of love and adoption. Not a brashness in us that's rooted in any kind of arrogance or pride or none of that. But a confidence that's rooted in the great love that you have for us and in the security of what it is to be adopted into your family. God, I even think really specifically you would save a city for 10 people. If there's 1,000 people in that city, that's oh, just 1%. The leavening element of your people, God, I'm thankful. I pray that we would not lose sight of that as we look at our city and our community. God, I pray that we would remember the role that we have and that we would pray for others and, and more generally for our community. God, I pray that you would answer prayers. Prayers that have been prayed before. And people would say, no, no, no progress. Would today be today, the day? Would this be the week? Not because we say the right words or because we have the right level of emotion or because things have gotten so bad, but because we're tugging on your character as a good and gracious and merciful and loving and powerful Father. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 